0: I'm here today with Anthony Richard, who is a blacksmith, historical martial arts practitioner and proprietor of Black Armoury, one of the largest suppliers of historical martial arts gear in Europe. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Guy. Good morning. So, just to kick us off, uh, I know where you are, but (laughs) that's because we know each other. Uh, But for the sake of the listeners, uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I am in south central
1: France, um, in the volcano country to the south of Clermont Ferrand, um, in, in the central mountains of France. So,
0: sort of middle of nowhere?
1: Sort of intentionally middle of nowhere. Um, well, middle of nowhere, that's, that's, that's kind of fun. Um, yes, I'm in a tiny little village, population, uh, just under 70. Um, wow, that is a tiny village. <laughs> which, is, which is fantastic. We've got lots of space and mountains and, and, and history and castles and, and, and stuff. Um, but we're only 10 minutes away from a medium sized town for France, which is about 10,000, and we're only 40 minutes from the city. So, um, okay. in that regard, we're not as lost as, uh, as it may seem. And when we moved here, my brother actually said, You know, what are you doing in the middle of nowhere? Um, and I told him, well, look, you know, the, the cool thing about where we are is that we're close to nothing, but we're far from nothing. We're four hours from Paris. We're four hours from the Alps. We're three hours from the Mediterranean. We're five hours from the Atlantic.
0: I mean, come on. Right. Yeah. And, and by European or continental standards, that's actually pretty close. By British standards, that's, the, you know, four hours from anywhere is the other side of the world. Well, and by American standards, it's right next door. Um, yeah. as you can
1: hear from my from my accent, I'm sort of in between the American and the French thing. So,
0: um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like like your bias says, you're from Washington D.C. originally.
1: I was born in, in D.C. Yeah, I'm, uh, okay. I'm an I'm an expat kid. Um, my uh, I, I I'm lucky enough to have two fathers I've got a. have got my natural dad David who's from Texas um and I was okay. raised by my uh by my second father my stepfather who's from Luxembourg um and wow
0: that's uh, quite a contrast yeah,
1: yeah my, so my mother's French um, I've got a Texan dad uh who was uh, a lawyer in Washington um and I've got my Luxembourgish father who was uh um at the did a, his career at the World Bank in D.C. Okay. um, So I was born and raised uh, primarily in Washington, D.C., traveled a bit, went back to the States, um, traveled a bit more, and ended up in France. Wow. So so you actually
0: chose France deliberately?
1: I chose France
0: deliberately. Um, And that's that's not to suggest that one shouldn't choose France deliberately. It's it's it's, It's interesting to me because a lot of people just end up where they are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, whereas, like, people are often completely baffled that, um, my wife and I deliberately chose Ipswich for various good reasons yeah. when we moved here in 2016. And, like, literally nobody we've ever come across in Britain has understood that choice because they don't understand the various variables that we were weighing up. But yeah, we deliberately chose to move to this specific place. And you've clearly done the same thing, which is unusual. My,
1: my wife and I have. A number of variables. Now, one of the variables, of course, for being I- exactly where we are, is that my this is the local area that my wife is originally from. Um, ah, okay. So when we came back from, uh, or from, uh, well, when we decided to be in France, um, this was the natural place to land, but initially it was potentially a temporary landing. Um, right. And that was almost 14 years ago.
0: So, <laughs> right okay well yeah I, and you know I, I have I have plans to come visit because it sounds like absolutely beautiful oh it and is, I can it, I it, can is. see from the books behind you that even if it's a rainy day there'll be plenty to do oh there will be well <laughs> oh, the the books <laughs> yeah um okay no, <laughs> the, the listeners can't see that obviously but um but yeah, Anthony just got up and moved his laptop around, and yeah, there is there is a pretty impressive um, library behind him. And actually, there's there's Michael Michael Chidester will be pleased. There is a a little special stack of I can see I can identify them from their spines from here. Yes. The entire output of Michael Chidester's Hema bookshelf, fantastically high quality facsimiles, just just. It's, it's like they're glued to the wall, but I, I assume they can actually be removed. Oh,
1: absolutely. It's it's one of those uh, fantastic little, what they call invisible shelves. It's got a little bracket that holds the bottom ah, book and then you just stack the other books on top of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, oh, that's very clever. Yeah, because it does look like they're just hovering against the wall. That's yeah, cool. it's, really, it's really neat. You can find those online, everyone. Okay. Um, so... Let's start with bashing hot metal because it's Ha-ha. super fun. Right. So yeah. you are a smith and I've seen some pretty fancy railings and steel furniture and stuff on your Facebook pages and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I was doing research for this interview. Yeah. Um, so what kind of smithing do you do? How did you get into it?
1: Well, I spent, um, I spent a number of years um, as a uh, historical ironwork restoration smith and um, Oh, okay. What that means is working with a lot of churches and castles and mm-hmm. and whatnot, doing restoration of their ironwork um, and and some creation of ironwork um, in, in that context as well because obviously, um, you know, a lot of historical ironwork has been lost uh, through the centuries. Um, and so there is
0: some recreation that needs to be done and some interpretation there as well. How did you get into that? I mean, that's... that's- not most most historical sword people, when they think smith, they think somebody bashing out swords. But yeah. what you're talking about is is sort of architectural reconstructive armor. I,
1: I, absolutely, I mean the uh, metal and sharp things. Um, and I know that you're in love with sharp things as well, beyond swords. Um, metal yeah. and sharp things have been have been a passion for me since as far back as I can. I can remember, um, uh, and I've always, always played with 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 metal, um, not just not just iron, not just steel. You um, know, I've done some silversmithing, I've done some copper work, um, I've done bronze casting. You know, through the years and and uh, and, and whatnot. Um, smithing as a profession came late. Um, I only did that once we were back in France. Um, so I was in my uh, Early forties. Um, I'm 52 now. Just for the for okay. the record and for <laughs> for the listener. Um, uh, so I, I always I've had other professions in the past, um, primarily marketing and advertising, online stuff. Sort of um, sort of
0: going going to work in an actual office with people wearing suits and computers and things like that.
1: It, yeah, yeah, scary scary stuff. Um,
0: Grown-up stuff, yeah. I can't stop. Yeah, the, 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 the stuff of nightmares, <laughs> I have, yeah. <laughs> I have no experience of that at all, really.
1: <laughs> but, um, but in parallel, I always had a small personal studio um, to do metalwork. Um, yeah, a sanity space. Ex- exactly. Uh, yeah, a refuge. A refuge yeah. from the world um, to... Work with fire and metal and and, and stuff. Um, when we decided to come back to France and we talked about the middle of nowhere aspect of, <laughs> of where we are, um, there were some decisions as well to be made as to you know what we what I was going to do for uh, for a living. Um, and I decided to make a big change from that suits and computers world mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, to uh, develop the metalwork um, you know as as a business um, I fairly quickly made the contacts that uh, that I needed to make to you know, get into that professional um, world uh, polished up on some training uh, the first year um, a lot of my metal work was uh, self-taught over the years uh-huh. um, over 20 25 years um, but obviously um, there were certain aspects of things especially when you get into architecture um you know there are some um uh, uh certifications that are required to be allowed right. to do it and whatnot so i went out
0: and got those um and uh, okay, okay. Uh, hang on hang on yep yeah. that's an interesting bit let's not skip over it so <laughs> you wanted to work on i don't know let's say some gothic cathedral or whatever but you need to have a particular bit of paper so the people in charge of the building will actually let you touch their armwork. okay, okay.
1: Uh, yes. Um, right. So, how does one go keep, about
0: getting that paper?
1: And keeping in mind that France is France, um, which means <laughs> it's not just the person who owns the building. Um, yeah. It's also the government and the official architects and the architects attached to the government and uh, and, and and all of that stuff. So yes. Um, well, how do you how do you go about that? You you get online and find out who is delivering the certifications, and then you select. The one that is not just delivering a certification, but actually has something that you want to take from them as far as an approach and a technique and, and a background and a passion and, uh, and, and, and all of that. You know, you're, you're not just selecting a piece of paper. It's not just a diploma. It's also, well, in my case anyway, um, I need to be um, developing a relationship with a human being. Or a group of human beings. Yeah. Um, so I found uh, that person uh, in that mm-hmm. that school um, about a three hour drive from here, um, down in the south of France, in Provence. In um, and uh, spent my weekdays there and my weekends here and got uh, okay. those certifications.
0: How long did it, it take?
1: A few months. Um, I had, I had sufficient, I had sufficient background that, um, we were able to gloss over the six months of basics, um, that would have been, that would have been required. And, um, I guess you could say that it was the equivalent of testing into the basic skills, um, and, and focusing on, um, the the missing skills and the missing knowledge. Um, right. So it, it, it was fairly fast in that regard. Um, um, and uh, and then it was a matter of uh, getting the word out that um, I was here and qualified. And <laughs> yeah, qualified and out. available. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> huh. Okay. So what was the first thing you worked on as a as a professional in that regard?
1: <laughs> the first thing I worked on as a professional is uh, about forty meters from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and if I lean out the window, I can see it. It was a small handrail for the little old lady um, on her front steps across from me in the village who, I was longer, who was no longer able to get up her little her steps. Um, and without uh, a handrail, she, okay. She was a lovely, lovely little old lady who needed a handrail. So, I and you better handrail. do a good
0: job because you're going to be looking at that thing for as long as you're living there.
1: It is still there, and her daughter now lives in the house and
0: uh, uses the handrail. It hasn't <laughs> fallen. Uses down. the
1: handrail, and no one's fallen. <laughs> um, Excellent. Then, and, and then, as far as historical uh, monuments um, are concerned. Um, the first few jobs were, um, you know, because you're getting your feet wet and you're getting, um, you're getting sort of vetted by the, uh, by the official architects on, yeah. on these things so you get some small work. And so again, you know, a few handrails and, uh, mm-hmm. a couple of gates and, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, and then I fairly quickly got into, um, a castle near here called the Chateau de Saint-Saturnin. Um, which is a very interesting place um, it was uh, the birthplace of Catherine de Médici's mother okay a lady named by the name of Madeleine Tour de Verne um, and uh, as such it was a royal castle because when Catherine de Médici became queen of France um she uh she, I think she probably only visited the place once in her life, um, yeah. travel being what it was at the time. But she had a particular fondness for this castle, which was the birthplace of her mother, um, and financed it um, regularly, the upkeep. And, okay. Uh, and, and How did she, have a royal patron? Exactly. It was, it was royal patronage. Um, and the castle had a fantastic history during the Hundred Years' War, and, uh, one of the, uh, the South Tower was completely, uh, redone and got what we call in France a couronnement. Uh, the top of the tower was, was redone as an emblem of, uh, its action during the Hundred Years' War, and, you know, all oh, kinds wow. of neat historical tidbits. But one of the neat things about it is that, um, we know from documentation that this castle had what was probably one of the first Renaissance gardens in France. Wow! Um, commissioned by Catherine de Medici, who was bringing this over from uh, from Italy, um, but the garden has not survived uh, uh, through the centuries. Uh, the castle was uh, became a monastery, and then it became a nunnery, and then it went into after the revolution and uh, it went into private mm-hmm. hands and all. Kinds. So there was there there are no. Um, plans and there is no um, record other than the existence of this Renaissance garden and the location of the garden. Um, so the current owner decided that um, he was going to commission the recreation of a Renaissance inspired garden because we have we don't have the plans yeah um, for the castle and wanted all kinds of neat ironwork um, for the garden. Ah, um, uh, okay. Uh, so that was a two-year project. Um, wow. um I can send you a few, a few pictures of what we did. Yeah, there please there. send us pictures.
0: Was I, I was just thinking of that because I've done a, quite a lot of antiques restoration with furniture, right? Yeah. And when you have a irreplaceable piece of furniture in front of you and you have to actually cut bits off it and stick bits on it and fiddle about with it generally – there is a very strong, I cannot afford to fuck this up vibe, right? But what you're describing actually is much less stressful because it's not like there's this bit of iron attached to this ancient wall and you have to like take it out and put a new one in or fix. It. So if you're actually creating kind of for a, for a recreated Renaissance garden, that's actually a, making the iron work for that is a kind of, it, it it feels to me from a maker standpoint as a kind of very low stress introduction to actually working on these sorts of sites.
1: Um, yes. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about the project that you just described. Um, it exists. It's sure. there. Um, uh, but, but this one, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the stress came in when I realized um, the scope of what we had decided to do. Um, and the fact that I was working alone in my workshop um, with deadlines, and oh my god, I'm never going to sleep again. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and and so there was that there was that kind of stress. But of course, no, there was not the there was not the stress of you know screwing up uh, something historical. That project was when I was subsequently given the restoration of the 13th century ironwork. Um, oh, the geez. doors of the uh,
0: of the church in La Mongie, I'll send you uh, That's of that not stressful at all. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely send us pictures of that too. That's, what, did, that, what did you have to do? Those doors, those doors
1: spent um, spent a year in my workshop, um, and
0: um, okay, oh, so I you had dismounted had the doors and took them into the shop and dealt with them there.
1: They dismounted the doors and delivered the workshop. Uh, they oh, delivered much. them to my workshop. Um, okay. And I then had to, I, I've got my notes somewhere, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I had to, um, as safely as possible, remove um, 127 or something um, medieval uh, nails that were holding oh. all of this together. Um, right. Take everything um, clean off the 19th century paint that had been applied to all of this. <laughs> yes. Um, and 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 uh, and reproduce the missing bits because bits and pieces had been over through the centuries, uh, ripped off, stolen, uh, yeah, removed. Uh, uh, a few pieces uh, may have been sold on the antiquities market. Whatever. Um, yeah. And uh, so restoring those pieces, cleaning the rest, um, documenting everything. Um, so so these uh so these doors uh w- we also required full documentation. Um I may, there are some uh fantastic late romance um animal heads, sculpted animal heads uh wow. here. Um for which I took molds. Um there was uh there were some remnants of uh of leather underneath the ironwork because a lot of these church doors were covered in leather at the time.
0: Really? So
1: samples that. of that. Um, I took samples of that and uh, got them to the architect so that they could do some analysis on uh, on that. Um, unfortunately, I never got any results from him, ah. so I, I don't know okay. what they ended up doing with it. But anyway, that that was gathered and uh, and given to yeah. them. Um, I had to forge um, some keys, um, which had been uh, which had been lost. Oh, fantastic story you've certainly run across this as well in your, in your, uh, furniture restoration. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you see old repairs that tell you some of the story yeah. of what you're working
0: on. And, and sometimes it's like a love letter from a long lost craftsman, And sometimes it's like hate mail from some recent pillock. And, and absolutely.
1: <laughs> and, and in this case, it's fantastic because this door, um, had, uh, three locks on it okay um, and the first lock it was just the lock location that was visible on in uh, you know on the door the second one was broken and still locked okay and it is perfectly visible and readable on the ironwork that one of the branches of the ironwork was bent aside to make room for the third lock. Oh God! For for which the key has been had been lost. So I had to forge keys for the third lock in order to mm. be able and and repair the lock in order for it to uh, to function again. But the second lock, um, which from its style um, was probably a fourteenth, late thirteenth, early fourteenth century lock,
0: yeah,
1: was broken, um, and. You can invent all kinds of fantastic stories around this. Um, you know, it's the morning of the wedding and the priest shows up and says, Oh my god, I've lost the keys. <laughs> <laughs> we can't, we can't, or, or a baptism or, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like, Quick, get the village blacksmith and break me this lock so that I can get into the church and perform the ceremony <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or, or whatever. You know, fantastic, fantastic things. Um, but that was the stressful, um, the stressful restoration of, okay, I've got to do this correctly um, from removing the first nail and documenting everything yeah. um, all the way to um, getting the work done, um, installing the um, newly forged pieces. Yeah. Um, now that's interesting in itself. I mean, you, you've got to reinforce these things as identically to the originals as possible um, while not muddying the waters for future research and future yeah. archaeologists. So all of the newly forged pieces are stamped on the back with their date of manufacture um, yep. um, and uh, and my forge mark um, as well. Um, and we made the decision with the architects um, to not weld these pieces to the original ironwork, um, but to mount them beside the pieces with a visible break between them. Um, That's
0: a good way to do it.
1: Yeah, so that it was immediately readable okay yeah. this is a restoration
0: yeah but you know a, a, a lay person wouldn't even notice but no. anyone who knows what they're looking at will go okay this door has been restored uh, or uh, there's a there's a fine line between conservation and restoration and it's it sounds like you're sort of you're there's elements of restoration like fixing the lock and getting it to work and there's elements of conservation like replacing the missing pieces but making it clear that they are modern replacements not original
1: Yeah, well, there, there, there's a third aspect as well, which is reproduction. I mean, there, there, there's, there's conservation, restoration, and reproduction. Mm. Um, copies. Sure. Um, and that goes into the weaponry that we, that we study as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, for me, from an ethical perspective, it is vitally, vitally important that everything is readable. That you know, this is a reproduction. Absolutely. Um, okay. That you know,
0: this has been restored. Um, in 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 honor of your Frenchness, yeah. in my in my display cabinet behind me, the the listeners can't see it, but I'll put a photo in the show notes. I have my copy of um, the seventeen forty edition of Girard, right? Yeah, Well, it was it was originally I got it as just unbound leaves. Yeah, that was missing the title page right everything else is complete mm-hmm. okay so what I did is I had it rebound by a professional binder who has done an absolutely glorious job of it he's retired otherwise i would make sure to dig up his name as taken in the show notes but he doesn't want any more work so sure right, sure. right I got my friend Yako Takokaglio who works at the um, national at the university library in Helsinki which has a copy of the 1740. Um, and he sent me scans of the missing page, yeah. right? And there is also in the 1736 is the first edition. This is the second edition. There's also a page. Um, so the, the title pages are slightly different in the first edition. Okay. Beautiful. So he also sent me those pages, right? So what I've done is clearly different paper, Mm -hmm. put in the missing pages from this edition, which is the title page and the dedication to the King. Also put reproductions of the pages that are different from the 1736 bound into the back, and a note um, here saying where I got the book from, where these scans come from. So that anyone who any anyone in the future who comes across this will know when it was bound, and where those reproduced pages come from, right? So they can see exactly what's original and what has been what has been replaced because it was missing, right? All
1: all of those steps. That's exactly it. All of those steps are vital, especially the notes. Um, yeah, uh, exactly. I can't, I can't stress enough. And, 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 and I'm saying this, I guess, for any, um, collectors out there, um, who, who acquire antique weapons, for example, or antique books. Um, the importance of noting any intervention that you make yeah. on the piece, um, is important, um, because all of these things, with any luck, are going to outlive us by by a long, centuries. long time. Absolutely, yes. I mean that's that's the intent. Um, I mean that's what that's what collecting, whether it's a museum or a private collector, um, in the end is all about. I mean, of course, there's the joy of having custody of this thing for a while.
0: Um, you saw but, the grin on my face when I went to get my Girard,
1: right? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a it's, thing it's, of glory. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, but. In the end, it's not yours. It's not mine. Exactly. It's yours for the time being. It's yours yeah. for the duration of your ownership. Um, yeah. But it's also a responsibility. Uh, yeah. And and it's very important, I think, for for, for all of us to remember that. Um, you know, I mean, I've got a few. I mean, they're not they're not very valuable, and they're not very old. But, you know, I've got I've got a few antique originals. Um, you know, mm. myself um, and. I realize, you know, this thing is going to be around, you know, longer than me and when something is valuable and unique um, valuable not just financially but also as far, you know, as yeah, as the history um, is concerned um, the responsibility just grows. I mean,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I have I have a 1568 Morozzo um, I've got a first edition Fabris and so a first edition Capo and yeah, it's it's You know, once the once my wife and children are out of the burning house, they're next. I have questions. Okay, we were talking about you were talking about getting medieval iron. Okay, good. We were talking (laughs) about getting medieval iron nails out of presumably like an eight hundred year old piece of oak. How do you do that without destroying the wood? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) You. Sacrifice mm-hmm. the nail first. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the end, it's not—it's not that difficult. Um,
0: The—I mean, you don't the, just the take a claw medieval, hammer and the, stick it underneath and yank. That's not going to work.
1: Well, 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 for one thing, you can't. Um, yeah. The way the way a medieval nail is is installed, you need to think of it much more as a staple than as what we think of as a nail. Sure. Um, medieval nails were extra long. They were run completely through the wood and folded back on themselves.
0: They were clenched. Yeah.
1: All right. Exactly. Yeah. They were clenched, um, which means that um, you can't just pull them out. No. So a, a medieval nail, um, you know, as a, as I was saying, was passed all the way through and bent over. And these things were designed to be removable. Um, that's the other thing that we always forget in our modern world, where we actually we don't have iron nails anymore. We have steel nails, um, okay. Which as a restorer, hardware.
0: you can you can order handmade iron nails, and they are woefully expensive, but they are the dog's bollocks for certain kinds Ye- of jobs.
1: Yes, you can, and I and I've done it. Um, but your hardware store nail is steel, mm. um, and
0: different piece altogether.
1: A completely different thing. Um, these are soft iron nails, uh, and unbending them is not a difficult thing now when I say that you sacrifice the nail um these are 800 year old nails or or close to it um some of them will break when you're when you're when you're unfolding them and need to be replaced
0: um, so you you don't forge weld them back together no not worth it okay okay
1: not worth it um in a restoration from a restoration perspective um reforging uh Ten or fifteen nails um, is a much better solution, okay. um, and you give the handful of broken nails to, you know, to the, uh, to the owners yeah. <laughs> of, the, of the property, and they're all happy because they make little keychains for their nephews and their nieces and their grandchildren. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and, and also nails back then were relatively expensive compared to. Well, yeah you know, these days we think of you buy a big bag of nails for practically no money but back then he's now being handmade and quite big and made of iron is they're going to be by our standards relatively expensive
1: well by our standards yes um, I don't personally know of any of any research on the actual value of nails um, mm-hmm. you know at, at the time um, but at the, at the same time um, Banging out nails um, was actually a lot faster than we would imagine. Um, sure, I, I was reading. I was reading an article a few years ago uh, by someone who had visited um, one of the last professional nail makers, hand nail makers, um, in Scandinavia uh, back in the 1950s or 60s. Mm-hmm um and uh, the rate at which this guy was churning out nails just, was just amazing um, I don't remember off the top of my head but I mean, he was he was churning out nails by the hundreds
0: yeah um I, yeah we see this, see this all the time though. like in if in a, a modern woodworker if they have a, a sawn plank and they're using their their planes which are set for dealing with um, no, so doing finishing work and adjusting work on dried um dried planks of wood, it's gonna take them forever to get that piece of wood down to the necessary thickness and you know, you 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 start by putting a a flat face on it and then you flip it over and you get it down to thickness and whatnot. If you're using like pre-industrial plane setups and wood that isn't fully dry yet. The whole process, I've seen somebody take a six foot long board that's about 18 inches wide and put a face on it. So one flat face, flip it over and plane about, should we say, half an inch off it to get it down to thickness. And he did the whole thing in about 15 minutes. Yep. Right. It's unbelievably fast when you're using the right tools in the right way, in the way that they used to be used. Absolutely. This reminds me of something, something about sword fights. Use the right tool the way it used to be used, and suddenly it just works an awful lot better. Absolutely,
1: exactly. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I, I mean, you know, I mean, we, our modern concept of how things should be done is completely, completely skewed by mass production um, and 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 the fact that for generations now we've been used to things like well, wood. How do you yeah. cut wood? Well, you saw it. No.
0: No. The fastest split it. and
1: best way, you split it.
0: You do have you do have sawn planks, but they no, are expensive and hard to produce and they are weaker and you only do it for very specific applications. Sawing is for when you need to cut across the grain. Um right. yeah. well, so, but also they did have they did they did saw planks for like tabletops and whatnot. But like ships are made out of split timber. Because why the sure. hell would you saw it? If you, as soon as yeah. you saw it, you're cutting you're cutting through the grain, you're not splitting it along the grain, and yeah. so you don't have contiguous grain from one end to the other, so the board is weaker. Yeah. And shit, you don't want that.
1: And then smithing is the, sa- is the same general idea. Uh, punching a hole through steel is way faster than drilling it. Yeah. And you're not losing any material.
0: Right. And when steel is expensive, that makes a difference. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so we still haven't got our nail out of the piece of wood yet. Okay, so... you've so, unclenched it. You've unclenched it. What do you do next?
1: Oh, you give it a couple of taps from the back, and... Then it just slides out? And you just lift it out, absolutely.
0: Huh. So it doesn't, like, get stuck to the wood in any way?
1: It does not get... To, it, it does not get stuck to the wood um, in any significant way. Um, that's the other thing that we need to remember about the iron at the time, Um it does not it does not rust the same way as steel. modern steels will right modern steels will tend to not only rust um but uh create oxides that increase in volume um yeah. and, and 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 get it uh, get it stuck in there the way these nails tend to rust um is uh that they will become more fragile Um, but the rust is kind of dusty, um, and, and friable. So it, it, it tends to just pull right out. And maybe you can reuse the nail, maybe you can't. In this particular case, um, and in a lot of cases where you have doors on churches, um, you know, Mm -hmm. let's not forget that the way people designed their architecture was so that they do not have a wet door.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> you know, so so. Um, well, because wet doors are expensive, you have to keep replacing them. Well, that and 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 uh,
1: the wood is going to warp, and the wood is yep. going to, you know, and if you have leather on there, uh, you know, water water is bad.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so you, yes, your door will normally be under some kind of a shelter. Even you see this in like medieval cottages that still exist around Suffolk you don't have the front door up against it you know, on the outside wall, like unprotected. You, you always have some kind of shelter over. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
1: Yeah. Huh. So the, so the nails, uh, you know, lost a few, had to reforge a few. Um, but for the, for the vast majority, they came out just fine. Um, I did have to, uh, that's one of the things about smithing that I just absolutely love is that you, that a lot of the time you're making your own tools, course yeah the job um and uh so i did have to make uh three separate nail headers that's the that's the tool that forms the shape of the head on the nail um okay. because basically nails you do have flat nails like mm-hmm. the ones that we know but a lot of the nails um are uh pyramid shaped yeah the top.
0: so how do you uh, make that
1: well, the easiest way to make it is to take a sample nail, um wow. put it through the uh put it through a uh a plate so that it will hold straight up and bash a piece of piece of hot steel onto the top of it to make a mold.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. That makes sense. And then then so you heat up the old new nail and you sort of bash it into the mold and it just takes that shape. And you 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 preform it with the hammer. Um, yeah. and to give it the final shape, you
1: you use the nail header.
0: Huh. Okay. So so you made three of those for this door. Because there were three different styles of nail.
1: Well, they, clearly they came out of three different workshops.
0: Right. Okay. And each workshop probably have its own particular way of doing it,
1: and their own nail header. Uh, yeah. And, and the other the other fantastic thing that is you know. Um, you, Ironwork, um, I, I say this a lot uh, because it's really how I feel about it. Um, ironwork is in the end nothing more than a choreography frozen in time. Okay? okay, You have all of the actions that went into creating a piece of ironwork um, unless they've been ground off or sanded mm-hmm. off or, or whatever are still there. Um, and looking at the back of pieces that are meant to be seen uh, will tell you so, so much. And um, for example, um, I was able to recognize individual tools used on the back because they will leave their own mark. Um, um, You're able to see where the blacksmith was working alone and where he had a striker hitting from the other side. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because of the angles, because of the way the, right. the way it all works out, and and in the end, you sort of have this almost cinematographic experience of seeing what was happening in the workshop. You know when they were doing mm. this, and that is just fantastic.
0: And you get the same thing when you open up an old piece of furniture, right? Not not exactly the same, but like you can see. Well, okay, this these pine planks have been finished with a jack plane they've veneered on the other side that puts it in a certain period mm-hmm. and looking at just the way things have been put together and the woods that have been used and you know even things like the angles in which the dovetails have been cut for the drawers
1: sure, like, sure. And I, like and I'm sure uh, like us you might be you might be able to see at some point as like oh okay well he stopped here because he was getting a little bit dull he resharpened his
0: tool and, and continued right you know it's yeah. it's, it's 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 fantastic stuff <laughs> yeah and it's like a conversation um, okay i i could keep blathering on about the um, architectural and stuff for the rest of this interview but i think i think some people listening might be expecting us to to apply the same sort of approach and interest to swords i mean swords are nice we like swords don't we?
1: let me let me let, let let me jump right onto the question that you haven't asked here no i do not make swords um
0: I was deliberately not asking that question because it, it's, it's too obvious, but I'm glad that you answered it. So why don't you make swords?
1: <laughs> um, I will make swords at some point when I have the time because swords are a very specific type of, um, of uh, smithing um, that I have not practiced um, and do not have the time to practice um I do make blades, I do make knives and whatnot, but the long blade, the sword um, is is not something that I've done. I have taken blades made by others and done cutler cutlery cutler's work on them um, in the sense of them up making 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 guards, hilting them up, uh, mm-hmm. making pommels you know that that type of thing. But blade smithing the long blade is not something that I've done
0: yet. It's a different thing. it's like it's like making bows. Right. When I first started making bows, the difference between making a piece of furniture where every piece of wood keeps its shape and doesn't move, and it's the shape of the pieces of wood that creates the structure. Yeah. Right. Versus a bow which has to store and release energy in a particular way. It is, it is just completely different. And sword blades are the same, like, you know, making a hammer every smith makes their own hammers at least at least some hammers right because you would but the the sword blade it has to resonate in a particular way i think in in from a craft perspective i think it's closer to bone making than it is closer to furniture making
1: i i completely agree with that assessment yeah um it, it's its own thing. It really yeah. is its own thing. Um, and it's not to say that it's more... It's not more difficult, I don't think. No, it's um, just different. It's, it's just a very, very different thing. Um, and I've spoken to quite a few uh, bladesmiths um, who would not do the heavy architectural work because they just don't yeah. have the experience, the time the, to, to, to learn it and whatnot. I do want to make some long blades at some point, um, but it will be later when I'm not needing to make a living <laughs> with my time
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah you know it's a retirement kind of project uh, more than anything else yeah.
0: okay so but you do i mean there are swords on the wall behind you um is the one behind you had a del tin i'm sorry which is a big long sword behind you is that a del tin? no uh, hold on let me oh this right one, yeah okay
1: yeah no this one is um an older mock blade ah right okay. uh re by me this, okay. is my personal, this is my personal longsword
0: okay for the sake of the the show notes would you mind sending us a picture of it because we've just yep. been talking about it and it's not fair on the listeners who can't see it. but it looks lovely and it, it reminds me in, in this sort of aesthetic with some of the, the Deltine swords we were using back in the late 90s. Okay. Um, anyway, so you do practice. So how did you get into practicing historical martial arts?
1: Um, I got into practicing historical martial arts um, in, in several goes with long breaks <laughs> okay due to due to various life events and travel and whatnot um my first um ex- my first discovery of historical martial arts as martial arts being practiced by people to uh, you know of our generation mm-hmm. um would have been in 1992 1993 um okay. in uh, in washington um I was uh fencing Epe, Olympic uh, Olympic fencing, mm-hmm. um in in Washington at the time. Um and there were a couple of guys um who would show up from time to time at the club um with rapier and dagger and oh, um, cool. and whatnot and who would just do their thing off to the side um and so uh So that's ninety two
0: ninety two. That's early days. Yeah. That's back yeah. when I was starting in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that was
1: very, that was very, very early days. Um, do you remember who they were? I do not. I do not. Um, uh, I, I played with them a couple of times. Um, but didn't really get, uh, didn't really get, uh, into it. Um, I was still interested enough in progressing with the Olympic FA at the time that, um, I, I didn't make that foray um immediately Uh, i guess it goes with my personality and i know this about myself is i tend to be the kind of person that when i get interested in something i go all in um and 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 tend to make a change Tend to stop what I was doing, and yeah. this is what I'm doing now, and this is my thing, and this is what I do. Um, and I was still interested in EPE at the time. Uh, I had only been practicing for for, for a few years, um, and uh, wanted to get better at that. So I didn't I I didn't give in to the temptation immediately, um, even though I was very um, interested in what they were doing uh-huh. uh, there. Um. I then came uh, across a couple of uh, friends um who didn't do it for very long um in the uh late 90s uh 98 99 uh, 2000 uh, a couple of people from work um where we uh have started hearing especially through the SCA crowd um mm-hmm. That uh, there was such a thing as late medieval uh, combat. The Renaissance festivals were very, very popular in the uh, Washington D.C. Maryland area as well. So right, you go to the Ren Fest every year and uh, and, uh, and and whatnot. Um, so we started playing with uh, with putting hilts on Boken uh, and Shinai God. and uh, yes. Yes, 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 yeah. Yes. I remember. Yes. Yes. Um, no. Uh, getting some uh, putting. We some were young. Life. It's not our fault. Yeah, <laughs> yep, absolutely, exactly. But you know, it, but it's it's what we had. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, sure. it's, it's what we had. Um, what we didn't have um, yet, because once again, I had not uh, gotten interested enough to really try to find the people who were really doing this. Um, what we didn't have were the, uh, were the sources. Um, so all we really had was going to the Renaissance festivals, seeing what those guys were doing, um, and going back and bashing each other with, uh,
0: sticks. Long sword like objects. With sticks. Sticks. Yeah. Let's call them
1: sticks. (laughs) They were sticks with a cross guard, you know? Um, uh,
0: so what changed? what changed yeah like like you were you were just going to run fairs and bashing your friends with sticks and now there's like a decent collection of swords behind you and you actually practice historical martial arts so what what made okay. the transition well here's the here, here's the thing the, 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 the collection of uh, and the interest
1: in period weaponry um predates my serious um practice of uh, historical martial arts um why i'm really interested in historical martial arts is and maybe it becomes it comes from my uh from my uh time as an uh, as an artisan um i'm interested in how a tool works and why it works the way it does and why it's designed the way it does the Mm -hmm. way it is um And the only way to understand how something is why something was designed the way it was is to understand how it was intended to be used.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so I come to the practice from the love of the object. Okay. Um and the desire to understand the object. Um and um I I am very, very much the sword geek. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested in knowing why this handle construction or this grip construction um, was used on this particular sword and not another? Um, okay. Why Why are we doing this? Because there, there there are reasons. Some of them will be economic. Some of them will be fashion. Some of them will be mechanical. Some. Um, some of them will be tradition. What you know? Uh, but figuring out the what and why of all of that requires you to play with these things and
0: oakshot understood that
1: Oakshot understood the the that um, the majority of the weapons collection curators um, that I have had a chance to exchange with understand that now that that doesn't mean that they all do it um, that doesn't sure. mean that it's possible to do it all with collections um, but as we move into an era and I we are in that era where we understand enough about these weapons to make proper reproductions of these weapons and then mm-hmm. go play with them
0: <laughs> yeah um, so do you play with a sharps a lot
1: um no i do not play with sharps enough um because I don't have time to play period a lot recently. <laughs> the last few years.
0: The way a sharp blade works is quite different to the way a blunt blade works, particularly when we're talking Absol- about blade on blade. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so when we're looking at how a historical sword functions,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, it's, I think it's a necessary piece of the puzzle is to use the sharp ones. I, I completely,
1: completely agree with you.
0: Um, and, uh. Next time you come to Britain,
1: come to my house and we'll,
0: so, we'll sort you
1: out with some sharps. We will do that. We will do that. No, I no, mean, the, the, the sharp, the sharp on sharp there, uh, is something that I am very, very interested in. I, I do not do simply for lack of a second sharp I trust. <laughs> right. Yeah, <fair. clears throat>
0: yeah, my my solution to that was I bought two sharp longs budget end sharp long swords. Mm. Um and just re them every six months. Yep. Yeah. Because they do get mashed up. Um, good. I wouldn't do it with my my beautiful sharps that I use for solo training or for um, test cutting and stuff like that. But I have I have a pair of sharps. Actually, absolute cheapest way to kind of get started on this is just buy a couple of machetes yeah right and I'm i sorry. Have, a, have a couple in the garden and you know i i use them for like cutting down nettles and whatnot but also you know every now and then bit of sharp on sharp practice because they, they cost about two dollars each Yep. these things and So they're entirely disposable.
1: However, however, I think I I, I, I miss I misspoke, or at least uh, at least I I wasn't clear when I say that I I'm, I'm missing the second sharp. I trust the trust is not the weapon; it's the wielder of the weapon.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, fair.
1: That's very fair. <laughs> well, don't worry. I'll look after you. I haven't that, killed a student yet. Do. No, no, no. That that <laughs> that we can do. No, but what I mean by that is locally. Um, locally, I do not have anyone that I can practice
0: sharp on sharp with. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and it, it does require you have to know that they're not going to panic. That's that I, I would think that that is the primary
1: thing. Yeah. Um the panic is dangerous.
0: I I did I've done quite a lot of sharp on sharp stuff with students in particular students I don't know. So like when I travel to places, I often do sharp on sharps with the students because it's their first experience of it. But the, the scariest such thing was at a role playing convention. I did a demonstration and then I opened it up so that anyone in the audience could come and do a bit of sharp on sharp blade work with me during the demonstration. And I got a queue of about 30 people who wanted to have a go, right? And it sounds ridiculously dangerous, right? But this is what we did. Firstly, I had about eight students with me, right? And what they were doing was they were keeping an eye on the audience and the whole thing was set up so that it was very obviously our space. So when somebody came to do the sharp stuff, they were entering our space. And the first thing they did was a basic drill with blunt swords with one of my students, which was the thing we were going to do sharp on sharp with me, right? And then they got passed over to me. So firstly, they had to queue up. Yeah. They were entering a space that was clearly belonging to me and my students. Yeah. They got filtered through these this experience of doing blunt on blunt, So basically, if they were the sort of person who couldn't do as they were told, that would have filtered them out, Yeah. right? And then they finally get to me. And because I have students literally watching my back and watching the audience, right? So I know that we're not going to be interrupted or whatever. I can give all of my attention to that one student in front of me and take them safely through the drill. And it was probably the best way to describe it. It was a spiritual exercise. I'm sure. (laughs) right okay. but it was, and, and it was really useful for, I mean I had some people who've been like doing martial arts for like 20 years come up to me afterwards and say that's the first time they've done sharp and sharp stuff and it's opened their eyes to all sorts of things about their own martial art which was like it was super rewarding yeah. right. I wouldn't do it again once was enough
1: well my <laughs> main thing at this point is that I is that I really really need to recreate the time to actually practice. I mean, forget, forget the, distinction between sharp, blunt, whatever. Um, yeah. the last, the last two and a half years, um, I have been practicing not enough period. Okay. Um, well, just, just running, running a, running a business, um, that depends on, um, proper supply, um, from various countries in COVID land. And now <laughs> in, uh, geopolitical land um, yeah is, is so, taking a lot of time
0: I, I have I have on my thing to ask you about uh, black armory so yeah what made you want to start that company and yeah you know, I mean we, we've all of us have had in, in the historical martial arts world've had experience of not being able to find the right equipment blah, blah, blah. and those of us that were around 20 years ago, Remember that there were no suppliers. You had to budget together from either individual makers or make it yourself or adapt something that's been made for something else. You know So what made you start, Black armory? Uh,
1: it started with the desire to restart practicing. Human. Um, okay. and discovering that there was a club in the town that I was telling you about, uh, that's 40 minutes, uh, from where, mm-hmm. from where I live. Um, this was back in two- late 2014, I guess. Um, okay. um, discovering that there was a club there and, uh, going up and starting to practice, uh, a little bit and realizing that, um, I didn't like the jackets. That right. were available um, for for myself. Um, you know, they're they're perfectly you know they're, they're they're perfectly fine. There were some there were some spes jackets um, in, the, uh, in the in the in the crowd that I was able to try, which were were just fine. But there was a Not little detail here, a little did, detail yeah. there that I didn't like. Um, there were some PBT jackets. There were different detail that I didn't like. You know, little yeah. things like that. And and I tend to be a a stickler for Ooh, but I want it just right. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, I had uh, a a person in the club um, who was sort of having the same kind of thoughts, um, and uh, we had a uh, a prototype jacket made by um, by someone uh, local to us. Um, that was giving us sort of what we wanted out of a, out of a jacket. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, it sort of grew from there because then it was, um, well, can we actually produce this thing? Um, and the answer was yes. Um, and is there interest in this thing? And the answer was yes. Um, and, um, people who were buying the jacket from us were saying, Hey, can you also get me this? Um, right. And the answer was yes, um, and it okay. sort of started. It sort of started growing from there. And remember, I was telling you earlier about my personality, which is you know, when I start something, I tend to go all in, um, which is extraordinarily dangerous. Um, the first thing that I told this person who became my business partner, um, the very first thing when we started saying, "Hey, you know, why don't we just start a company and do this." The first thing I said was, yeah, but I've got my forge. I don't have time for this. Um,
0: yeah.
1: I can help, but I can't do this.
0: <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh.
1: It, it, yeah. Well, look at me now. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so it, it grew. It grew from there, and, and and so we put together a small catalog and a and, and a website, and uh, and I got more and more involved, and uh, fairly quickly over the first couple of years, um, it became my primary activity. Um, okay. It, it, it coincided with with a number of things. It, it coincided with. Um, 2014, 2015, 2016 were the years where from the production side and the conception side historical martial arts gear really started being pretty much there. Um, mainstream, yeah. Well, mainstream and and the production issues had been sorted out and a lot of the design issues it wasn't perfect, but you know, a lot of the design issues had been sorted out, and it was yeah. it, it was possible to get these things into the hands of um, the interested masses.
0: Um, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I think the last part of that is the tournament scene. And the Tournament scene part, is like the the engine which drives. It's the motor,
1: It's the driver for that. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, so so there was that on one side, and um, there were a number of things going on in the um, restoration uh ironwork side of things. Um at that time there was there was a slowdown for all kinds of reasons and, mm-hmm. and, and public finance reasons and and whatnot. Um that sort of uh created the perfect storm <laughs> for <laughs> for me to make a, for me to make a shift into uh into black armory. Um okay so and, so you and, basically
0: it, you gave up the architectural armwork stuff to do Fence, I, I progressively
1: I, I progressively slowed down um until 2017 2018 um when i put the hammer down professionally and uh, and reserve the uh forge time for the for, for personal stuff in the
0: okay uh yeah because i mean you're not going to stop hammering on it's like me i'm not going to stop cutting bits of wood like, can't. not possible no, <laughs> yeah no, no. how would you no, no, it's part of it's, it's part of me. Um, yeah. doing it
1: professionally, however, no.
0: Um, I, just, I, I I used to be a professional cabinet maker and I hated it. It was the wrong job for me completely. But it's it's the right hobby. It's entirely the wrong job. Yeah. It just made yeah. me miserable. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, so Black Armory started started from from the idea that we wanted something better for ourselves. Um, it grew from there into people seeing the, 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 the. We're talking about the Arkham jacket here that, that we mm-hmm. still that we still sell that we're, you know, this being being upgraded. Why is it called guys? the Arkham jacket? Um, Arkham is uh, one of the declensions of, uh, and this is why we don't call it this um, of arse. <laughs> in uh, right. in Latin, which is a citadel, which is the uh, citadel, um and was sort of a natural uh, natural name for that which protects protective gear. Um, oh, okay, so sort of
0: like like the castle jacket.
1: It's sort of the castle jacket. Yeah, exactly. Um, but since the Roman, since the Latin word is arse um, and we wanted to sell this in English, um, it, it just totally <laughs> hung out for us. So we said, okay, let's, let's, let's work with one of the declensions uh, there. So okay. in, in the end, it's a declined arse.
0: Okay, I declined <laughs> ask. to ask. Get your declined answers from
1: blackarmory.com. Exactly. So that's, that's, why, that's why the Arkham, and, uh, and that's why the Arkham logo is, is, is a little rampart with a. Uh, ah, the okay. And, All right. And whatnot. So, um, initially, it was uh, that idea of, uh, of protective gear. We do have other things um, under the Arkham line you, now. You sell by books, too. Oh well, do. yes, but that's but that's not under Arkham, of course. No, no, yeah, okay. We have, so, we, have we have two brands under 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 Black Armor. We've got Arkham and Duhima. Uh Okay, Dohema, which is an obvious kind of yes. nonsensical name, but you know it's Duhamel. So
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Um, okay, so and one of the things that you guys sort of specialize in is. Oh, New ways of solving old problems. Like, uh, I'm particularly interested in your complete suit of armor in plastic. And now you've got Daniel Jacquet consulting on this. And Daniel, yeah. by the time your episode, this episode goes out, Daniel's episode will have come out a few weeks before. So listeners can go and listen to Daniel. If, if you've never heard of Daniel Jacquet, then you don't know anything oh. about medieval comics. Oh. The man, the man, the man is, an, is, is like, in, in the armor combat world, the man is a god, and rightly so. Guys, so, come on, it's, it's Doctor Dan. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so he's consulting on this. So, your basic, your idea there is to produce a full suit of, sort of gothics, we say, or late, uh, late yeah, late fourteenth century late Italian, 14. yeah, late fourteenth century armor, but entirely in plastic entirely
1: synthetic here um, Why? Let, let me let me just jump back to the way you phrased it um, uh, initially um, new solutions to to old problems um, I, I wouldn't say it quite that way um, okay because the old problems are solved yeah they the, 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 the original designers of these things, whether it's the armor, whether it's the weapons or, or whatnot, had solved the problems um, uh, uh, a long time ago. What we're doing is twofold. Um, one, it's um, applying new materials to all solved problems um, in, okay. in, in, in one sense um, and bringing the price... Down to an acceptable level for more practitioners of historical martial arts by okay. applying those new materials, um, to the, uh, to the. So, so the idea behind the, um, the synthetic, uh, harness, um, is to use the old solutions to the old problem, which are perfectly well adapted. Yeah, so um, the design
0: is basically copied off. Historical originals.
1: As much as is possible. Yes. Um, um, But to produce them in a way that um, allows for several things. One, um, by having it in a synthetic material, um, we can more easily semi-mass produce these things. And I don't mean mass-produce. Theoretically, we could mass-produce them. Um, and if we were to uh, jump to the very end of your interviews and have the million dollars to do just this, yes, we could t- technically mass-produce these things. Um, but it's a huge investment
0: um, yeah.
1: and not worth doing. So semi-mass-produce. Um, which means still a lot of hand-manufacture, but in a material that is uh, a lot more forgiving and uh, requires um, uh, a lot less time than steel or iron, okay? Right. Um. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that beyond the cost, um, full steel harness um, requires a certain amount of getting used. To. Um, it requires... Yeah a certain amount of physical conditioning, um, yep. even though these things are wonderfully balanced and distributed across the body. You so still have, lack. you still have those kilos. Um, yep. and you still have that physical conditioning that needs to be done. Um, you know, one of the things that Daniel was telling me when we were starting to do this, he said, you know, it took me six months of wearing my harness two hours a day intentionally to develop the tiny little muscles that you don't even know are there. Mm-hmm to be able to actually wear this thing and move in it in a combat sort of way. Yeah. Um, so that's not the kind of physical development investment that the average hemo practitioner is going to be able or willing to put in.
0: Yeah, Most, most people playing with simply can't go to work in their house. Which is what you need to do. I mean, to get used to it, you need to put it on and wear it. I mean, when I was conditioning to my harness, I would sometimes get into it and then just, yep. you know, spend the morning doing woodwork in my armor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, right. people like Daniel who go to airports and harness.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's, a new, he's a, he's a, new <laughs> take.
1: he's a new <laughs> I love him. Um, but, but in any case, um, yeah, so, so there's, there, there, there is that aspect, um, as well of, um, lowering the bar is not just about making something that is more affordable to more people um but is also more accessible simply physically yeah. to more people um okay yeah so, so so the idea there was to was to yes to to see what we could do to have something as historically accurate in its design and in its mobility um in the targets that it offers um, to the practitioners, um, in as many hands, or in this case, it, on as many bodies, as possible.
0: Okay, so is it actually available yet? <laughs> yes and no. Um, okay.
1: Yes, it is. Um, our partner, um, for this, um, in on the production and on a lot of design, um, is Michael Zavitsky. Michael is Ukrainian. Michael is in the Ukraine. His workshop is in the Ukraine. So what does that mean? That means that we get into the geopolitics that I was talking about earlier. And I'm, 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 I'm calling it that because I'm just calling it that. Um, it's a difficult situation. Um, that said, I am hugely impressed with, um, my several Ukrainian suppliers. They are still working. Yeah. Um, they are still producing, they are still shipping. Um, specifically, the armor um, has been slowed down a bit in its production um, because uh, Michael has used his stock of synthetic material, the, uh, the same material that we used for the armor, um, to produce um, other things um, that are required for the defense of this country. Um, and, uh, Fair enough. Uh, well, I well, I can, I, I can, I, I, was hesitant initially to talk about it, um, but uh, since he has advertised it all over Facebook, uh, it's it's fair game. Michael is producing um, knee pads and elbow pads for the uh, for the Ukrainian uh, military um, using the stock of plastic that we're using for the armor. I, uh,
0: I don't think anyone can reasonably object to that. No, there's no apart, apart to that. from the Russians who'd be very upset. <laughs> And, and and even so and what
1: are we what are we protecting we're protecting, we're protecting elbows and knees against uh, against uh, Abrasions. Um, yeah exactly yeah. but but in any case um so there was a, there's a bit of a slowdown there and it's and it's uh, simply a raw materials issue um, okay. that will that will be solved um, Michael also produces our synthetic pole arms um, and those are still being produced and shipped
0: okay excellent yeah and, and one thing that I have tried to encourage my listeners and readers, whatnot, to do is now is a really good time to buy stuff from Ukraine, particularly yes. from our historical martial arts suppliers in the Ukraine, because every drop of foreign currency going into the country is doing something useful. Oh, absolutely,
1: absolutely, um, and and one of the things that uh, we made clear. I mean, I'm not going to go into you know all the commercial agreements that I have with various suppliers sure. and, and whatnot. But- But specifically regarding the Ukraine, um, uh, as long as this situation lasts, um, everything that comes in on purchases of the Ukrainian material goes to pay the Ukrainian, um, upfront so that the the cash is flowing, so that it's going in, so that it's, uh, so that it's there. So, no, no, that's, that's, that's important. And, and quite frankly, since we're talking about, you know, this, this situation um and we're talking about historical martial arts it's not just the ukrainians um you know it's the russians as well i mean our russian producers um you know people like kvetin um and and, and whatnot you know are are uh, put in a terrible spot by the situation yeah. as well
0: you know? they are being absolutely screwed over by their government
1: no absolutely absolutely so yeah. you know it's it's a matter of of uh of Hema solidarity and it's not a it's not right a, right. at all a national thing.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. So yeah. so people can actually go to your website and if they want to just order a set of this this harness now.
1: Yes, they can,
0: and it will be delivered um, eventually. It's just,
1: it's just going to take a little bit more time than we had hoped. Um, you know, right now. Sure,
0: but honestly, honestly, long lead times is kind of par of the course with um, historical martial arts. I mean, I remember back in when we were dealing with Del Team. Like in the nineties, the one thing I loved about Del Team, right, nice designs, nice swords and that. But they said, order now and you will get your sword in ten months. Right, that was there all the time back then. And the thing is, so many smiths, so many suppliers would say, order now and you'll get your thing in three months. Okay. But the thing is, that three months became six, became nine, became 12, yeah. and eventually you might get your thing two years later. Whereas Del Team, they said 10 months, 10 months later, you got your thing every time. Right. So, that's- you know, waiting a bit, that's fine. I, I, I had some, some hand, uh, you know, you're I had some woodworking swords made by a chap called Florip, Florip Tools in the United States. Hey, he's a retired Marine who is sort of, gone into making these fantastic hand saws, right? And they are beautiful. And yeah, they take eight months, nine months yeah. to get, get it. I don't care because when they arrive, they're fabulous and exactly what I ordered and totally worth both the money and the weight. So I, you don't need to be embarrassed by long lead times, I think.
1: Well, it's, so, it, it's something that I'm trying hard to manage um, at, the, uh, at the moment. Um, it... it, it it has been a rough ride, um, uh, as far as managing a, a business of this, uh, of this type, um, over sure. the last. Well, you know, COVID was not the biggest issue. Um, 2020, 2021, um, you know, we had some slowdowns from time to time and, uh, and whatnot. It was, but it wasn't, uh, a big, a big problem. Since November, December. Mm-hmm um it's it, it's been complicated in the sense of um we ourselves never know what to expect as far as when we can get delivered yeah from our suppliers um yeah because we so you can't make, make promises, and we can't we can't make promises um and 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 yet we kind of have to um yeah. so there's 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 that aspect of things um there's uh It's raw materials. Sometimes they're available, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're available with one supplier, but not another and and, and whatnot. So we don't know what's coming in and when. Um, Shipping has become all over the place. Um, Right. You know, the same package will sometimes take 24 hours to get to a certain location. Sometimes it'll take a week.
0: Yeah, and I've had like an order of books I sent to a bookshop in Germany sat in Frankfurt airport for six weeks before they would send it on six before weeks is... before they remembered them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, it, the whole thing is that uh, Brexit has not helped. Oh, really God. not, really don't get, not at don't all. Get me no, no, that's, okay. 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 Sorry, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Okay. No, fine, no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, I'm like, I have, I have a sword coming from the Ukraine. Um, and I know it's shipped. I know it's, I've got the message from Royal Mail saying it's arrived in the country, and it got from war-torn Ukraine to Britain in less than a week, and it's been sat in Britain for about three weeks now. Yeah. Because apparently lorry drivers are demanding to be actually treated like human beings and paid properly, or something like that. Anyway.
1: So, okay. so, yeah, I mean, it- Complicated in that regard, but, you know, trying to put things in place. Um,
0: to so now is a difficult deal. time to be a supplier.
1: Now is a complicated time to be a supplier. Um, you know, things, okay. things are, are happening. It's just a lot more work to manage than it used to be, than it should be. and, and, and We will get back to a sense of new normal. Um, and, and, and learn to manage the, uh, the situations uh, and whatnot. Um, you know, the, the other thing, you know, that's uh, is that, uh, um, we started this company, um, there were two of us, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, my, my business partner decided to go off and do other things, um, in late 2019. Uh, so, so. I had to sort of readapt things to yeah. um, to working uh, working that COVID actually helped in that regard because it sort of gave the company the breathing room to rethink things um, okay. in early twenty twenty. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's it's complicated for the suppliers and the producers. Um, therefore, it's complicated for us to manage the situation in, in, especially as far as communicating yes, you will have your order at this time or at that time or, or Yeah, anything. but you know, we're, we're putting things in place and we're, we'll, get we'll get there
0: okay, excellent so, yeah. you know what's coming mm. you've, you've decided to become an architectural blacksmith person and you went and did that and then you decided to start a stock martial arts company, and you went and did that and what is the best idea that you have not acted on?
1: Apart from investing in Apple stock in the early 1990s... Um,
0: did you actually have the idea to do that? I didn't. Oh,
1: I, uh, I absolutely did. Okay. I, I and you didn't do it? I I've been No, I did not. Damn. Um, yeah, well, you know, water under the bridge. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Here's... Here, here, that was that that's a tough one for me um i have i probably have a a number um but i'm very much of a um put my head down and run towards the wall and we'll figure out whether there's an opening when we get there kind of guy yeah. um so i don't usually know whether a good idea is a good one until i've actually tried it yeah Um, so identifying a good idea in hindsight is, is I, 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 I don't know things that things maybe that I wish or that I would have liked to have done by now, but didn't, regardless of whether it was a good idea or not. Um, riding horses. Um, Ah, I, I, I I, I, I have, I have been, Telling myself I will start riding next year, since I was like eighteen. Um, are there horses near? You? Oh gosh, there are horses everywhere.
0: Uh, right but so, so why don't no, you just definitely
1: riding coach? Just just do it.
0: Y- yeah, D- just do week. it. Just, like, I, will, no. I will. I Not will. Not next, next year. year. Not next, next year. year. <laughs> <laughs> next week. This week. Next week. Seriously. The only reason I don't ride horses regularly is because my eldest child is seriously allergic to anything yeah. with hair, yeah. and so it's just not practical for me to be coming home covered in horse hair. I would literally have to strip naked at the front door every day, every time I came home, and it's the neighbours would object. But seriously, in that
1: regard, it. Guy... I hear Horses you seriously in that regard. If it was a matter of saying I want to get on a horse and ride around in a touristy kind of uh, in way for a couple of hours, I'll go tomorrow morning. Um, investing the time in learning to ride properly um, is yeah. unfortunately not for right now. It, it, it really isn't. Yeah, yeah. I do not have... I don't have the time to pick up
0: a sword right now. We can combine them. Pick up a sword Nobody. on a horse.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hear you I, I hear you I, okay, I, okay. I am making I am making excuses but trust me they are good excuses <laughs> Here, here's the thing
0: right I've, I've been wanting to fly planes for 10 years since I first stumbled into a trial lesson as a complete accident I'd never been interested but I went on this trial lesson and it blew my mind completely yeah but I never had the money, right? And always you either have the time or the money, right? Because you, it's very unusual to have both. So by the end of last year, I realized I did actually have the money mm-hmm. to start flying properly, right? And so I just said, fuck it. I will make the time. And I have let all sorts of things slide. Like I'm, I should be way further ahead on writing my next book, but. Every time I go flying and I try to go at least once, sometimes twice a week, it's most of a day because it's, it's most of an hour to get there. Yep. There's, you know, briefing and then flying. And then, uh, after the flight, you have a debrief and then all sorts of fiddling about. And that. So for every hour in the air, it takes me probably four hours out of the day. Right. And sure, that time has to come from somewhere. So, but you know what? Totally worth it. Totally worth it. I, I I, can think of a million things you could just let slide just to get yourself on a horse, and I think you would not regret it. I really, you should do it. And, okay, you, know, you may be letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, yes, absolutely, long-term goal, learn to ride properly, do your flying changes, and you know, all the other guvnors that go along with you know, high-level riding, right? Absolutely, that should be the goal. But there is there's much value to be had in simply showing up, doing the necessary stable work, getting on the horse, riding around the field for an hour, and then getting off, looking after the horse, and going home again, right? Time spent in the saddle is never wasted in the same way that time spent flying a plane is never wasted. It doesn't have to be all formal instruction and doing it perfectly. No, that's 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 perfectly that's perfectly understood
1: and and makes a lot of sense.
0: So, next week.
1: Excellent. Once I figured out how to string more than forty-five minutes in one stretch
0: <laughs> Dude, we've been talking for 90 minutes. You should have said, Guy, I'm terribly sorry, I can't do the interview today, I'm going riding. And do you know what I would have said? I would have said, Good choice, sir.
1: <laughs> that is that is that is fair enough. That is fair enough. I'll tell you what. Why don't you delete the last hour and a half? And I'm
0: gonna <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we've got it now. We might no, not use it. it. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. absolutely. No, no. So, so yes. So, 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 riding um, is is something uh, that uh, I will do. Absolutely. Um, Next week, shortly. Okay. All right. Abs- short.
0: Next week. Brilliant. short Brilliant. Okay. Um,
1: and and probably probably a number of other things, but um, that's that's probably the one I, I'd say. The reason I chose that one, I think, is that's the one that I can say yet, and that I will do.
0: Okay, and you know, I know quite a few people, Jessica Finley being one, yeah. um, who have taken up riding fairly recently. So you know, in our middle age, because it wasn't available when we were younger, or just wasn't a thing we yep. got into yep. that back then. And it's transformative. It's it's, it's yeah. just one of those things that's fundamentally good for you. And the thing is, we are not getting any younger. Our hips are not getting more limber with age. So, Agreed. you know, if you leave it too late, you might end up not in physical condition to do it. So yeah. time, times are fleeting. Yes, sir. Right. You I'm you I'm have it. your marching orders, sir. Yeah, yes, sir. Come on my show, Anthony, and I'll tell you what to do with your life. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> sir, guy, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, my last question. Somebody gives you a million quid to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. Of course, what you do is you open a stable. No. No. What would you do with it? What would I do with it?
1: I would, because in itself it would be not sufficient, unfortunately. Um, but I you can have as much money as you want. Use it That's... well. I would use I would use it to get the research and legwork and probably initial scripts done for a historically accurate mini-series. Okay! Okay, now, right, so here's, 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 my, here's here's my thinking. Yeah. And if somebody wants to take this one and run with it, please do it, but please do it right. Okay? Yep. Yeah. Paulus Hector Mare. Oh, yes. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Paulus Hector Mare is the perfect subject for a historical martial arts period Series. It's Absolutely. got everything. It's it got does. the intrigue. It's got the how were manuscripts produced. It's got how is this artwork done. It's got the fencing schools. It's got the. It's got the fact that uh, Joachim Meyer was teaching and practicing a three-day ride from Paulus Hector Mayer at the same time. So we can throw him in there as well. There's all kinds of things. There's the fish There's there's the there's the uh. It's all there. Just
0: just just for the sake of listeners who may not know who Paul Tekdemir is, could you summarise the high points of his life for us?
1: <laughs> saint Paulus. Um, <laughs> is, he was a, not a saint. <laughs> no, but as far as I'm concerned, he's he's the patron saint of historical martial arts.
0: Um, okay, I thought that was Michael Chiderstep. But carry on. <laughs>
1: No, Michael Chester Cher- is 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 the is the uh, current um, cleric of, <laughs> of historical martial arts. But Saint Paulus, no, Paulus Paulus Hector Mare um, was um, uh, a Bavarian uh, mm. Uh, mm. martial artist. Um, but he, in the late uh, 16th century, uh, he, he died in 1579. Um, who produced How he died a, is important. A, oh, absolutely. And we'll get there. But who right. produced a monumental work um, that was designed from the ground up to preserve martial arts that were already starting to fade by the time he. Yeah. Did, that, did all of this, which is why I'm saying that he is the patron saint of historical martial arts because he yeah. was a HEMA guy he was a yeah. HEMA guy, it's what, it's what he did and, um, and he, he was is, also pretty
0: much the only one who was deliberately recording what was, as opposed and, to what is or what may be.
1: Exactly, and probably yeah. traveling around a little bit to find the more obscure stuff like, uh, you know, he's he's got look, he's got agricultural scythe combat, it's fantastic yeah. Um, you know, and he's got his pole arms and he's got the long sword, he's got, he's got it's it's all in there. It's it's absolutely monumental. Um and he was also an elected official um uh in his uh in his town. Um and producing this kind of manuscript was extraordinarily expensive. Producing the he was a huge collector of uh of manuscripts and books mm-hmm. um as well. So Putting that library together and financing the production of this monumental work cost a lot of money. And that money was, um, shall we say, um, well,
0: embezzled, embezzled, from,
1: embezzled from the state coffers. Let's <laughs> not beat him out of the bush. He, yeah, exactly. he,
0: just, he just stole. Exactly. He, stole, exactly. he, stole,
1: he stole the money. He did, he did. He stole the money for which he was hung. Um, in 1579, um, uh, executed as as a criminal, which he which he was. But but see that's that's where that's where this series is fantastic because it's got it's, it's even got the intrigue and the potential character who is jealous of him and, and know, yeah, brings who, del- yeah, who delight. light and who and found sec- out yeah who who did the, sec- the investigation exactly and and yeah. the secretary in the mayor's office who discovered this and you know and uh, I'm and, thinking,
0: and and he wasn't doing it just for himself right he wasn't he wasn't stealing the money and spending it on you know beer and skittles he was stealing the money so that he could collect these manuscripts and create this monumental historical martial arts work I mean
1: if you, exactly. so he's basically
0: a martyr to the cause
1: exactly but but yeah. but, the, but see and, and, and so his story for me is um, the perfect backdrop because of the intrigue that, that can also go with it because of the fact that he's not only a martial artist, but that he's looking at other martial artists and producing these works and whatnot, to have an interesting miniseries like the ones that we like to see, you know, the Tudors and the Borgia and all of these things.
0: Which but are that crap. Is, I can't stand them.
1: Yes, but fair, f- fair enough. But that's the whole but point. But they're popular, yeah. But that's the whole point. To do something... That's popular like those, but that shows the origins of our world, our historical martial arts world. And do
0: it accurately.
1: And do it correctly.
0: With even the right ironwork on the doors.
1: (laughs) Exactly. The right nails. Um, (laughs) Because there is enough in this story to not have to make shit up.
0: Yes. Now, the, the real trick there will be getting the right producer and the right director because with the wrong production director they'll make shit up anyway. Well, of course. So, yeah. That's I think that's so the anyway. getting the right. Anyway,
1: one. it's it it's fantasy money, so it's a fantasy
0: project. Um, we'll get it done right. It's a bloody good idea. That's a really really good idea. Okay, people listening, um I think if any of you is actually a TV producer, come and talk to us. We'll sort you out. This could be amazing. This could um, be This could be bigger than Game of Thrones. Well, unlikely. Well,
1: Mm. Well.
0: Better than Game of Thrones, indisputably. Bigger, probably not. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining (laughs) me today. It's been lovely talking to you. It was a good time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anthony. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. And you definitely want to check those show notes this week because we have lots and lots of pictures of Anthony's blacksmithing work and other things. So Um, that's swordscore.com forward slash podcast. And while you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list if you want to, you don't have to, but I would strongly advise it. And I'll send you a free copy of my book, sword fighting for writers, game designers and martial artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks as always to Andrew Lawrence King for the baroque harp accents originally recorded for my paradoxes of defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Elizabeth Champion about, well, <laughs> it goes into some interesting territory. We discuss the historical figure of Merlin, amongst other things, and what exactly is a medieval round table tournament as well as discussing her historical martial arts practices and indeed her cage fighting background. We also discussed doing historical martial arts with a range of disabilities. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Most importantly, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Don't keep the good stuff to yourself. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week.